Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Mixing Proton Packs and Pizza, it's episode 188 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I say that because we're going to be talking not just Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but Ghostbusters this week. IDW has released a second team up between TMNT and Ghostbusters. Got Tom Waltz back on the show this week to help us talk about that. Eric Burnham as well, really looking forward to diving into two of the biggest franchises in the nerd world, right? Not only that, the spoiler-filled review of Thor Ragnarok is here this week. What did I think about it? I think it was as great as everyone else seemed to think it was. Maybe, maybe not. I guess you'll have to find out. But first, reviewing a couple of new comics is what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Victoria Atkin, the voice of Evie Fry, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Grab that long box, tablet, or laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading and a book that we've known about for a while finally came out this week. Looking forward to talking about Port of Earth number one from Top Cow and Image Comics. Of course, written by our buddy Zach Kaplan. Andrea Muti does the art. Vladimir Popov does the colors. And Tony Pitieri does the letters. Basically, what we have here is first contact between humans and aliens. They kind of came down, wanted to cut a deal with us said they needed a refueling port. That port just happens to be Earth. So in exchange for that, they give us something. I'm going to give you this as spoiler-free as I possibly can, but I will say one of the things I really liked about this book is how Zach really sets the tone for what's going on here. And that might seem simple, but it's really not because not every initial issue of a series starts out that way. But we find out everything from start to finish, how things are going, and the timeline progresses so nicely, even though it progresses sort of rapidly. It progresses so nicely, you don't even realize kind of how much time has passed. It just seems like the flow was so good and how he laid everything out and like, this is how it started. This is how it came after this amount of time. This is how it came after this amount of time. And didn't feel like I was really missing out on anything if everything was set up so well. And then you get your first incident, it kind of sets up the rest of the book at about the midway point, which I really, really like. And then we turn our attention to a couple of agents from the Earth Security Agency, Rice and McIntyre. And it's almost like a live PD kind of thing, which is what I love about this book. You get a little bit of like cops slash live PD going in the Earth Security Agency, which I thought was really, really neat idea. But it also opens up the door to some problems as well. As you see by something one of the characters does, based on some rules that are laid out, that's the best way that I could possibly put it. So, I like the dynamic between the two characters as well, even though we don't get a whole lot about them until they're kind of thrown in to the to the middle of the book and the, and the, the story sort of changes a little bit. So, we don't get a whole lot about them. I'm sure that we will get a little bit more about them. We get a little bit of background, very, very little bit. But there will be more about them, I'm sure, as things go on. And, you know, anytime you're reading a comic and something seems routine, it never really is, is it? So that was the other intriguing thing about this book for me. 
And, you know, it really had a settler's vibe, right? Like a Jamestown type of vibe when the Americans ran into the Indians and, and kind of brokered a deal. And, and that's just kind of what it felt like. It really did felt like a legitimate colonization. And then you have certain instances and then you kind of get a Revolutionary War vibe as well from this. So I love what Zach Kaplan's doing here. Andrea Muti on the art just enhances that and really sets the groundwork for this entire issue. I just love the style. It works so, so well. Kind of figured this would be a poll for me. Wasn't disappointed at all, and it definitely is a poll. Should be for you as well. Can't wait to see what's going to be happening in Port of Earth. Going a little bit dark for our next book in Dark Horse Comics is Jenny Finn at number one, which is written by Hellboy scribe Mike Mignola. And we have Troy Nixie also helping him write and doing the art as well, Dave Stewart on the colors. Now, this actually follows a woman named Jenny Finn, who's it's we're, we're in London now, and basically there are two problems here. We also we have a plague that's going around that's kind of transforming people. And you also have a slasher killing prostitutes. So, I mean, it harkens you back to the time of like Jack the Ripper and stuff like that. That's that's kind of the vibe that you get or the, the time period that you really feel like you're in here. Maybe even a little bit before that. Again, I don't want to spoil too much here, but there is one character in this book named Joe. And it, it's almost like a village idiot kind of vibe. It's like, and he admits that he's a moron too. That's the, that's the funny thing about this. It's like... Hey, I'm a moron, but I'm a nice guy, and I get the job done, and and I'm just going to try and help this girl, Jenny Finn. He, I mean, it's almost like the best of intentions go badly for you, and he's trying to do the right thing, and it turns out he gets involved in something that he probably shouldn't be involved in in the first place. And Jenny Finn is a very, very peculiar character. If nothing else is set up well in this book, that definitely is. Mike Mignola sets her up is a very peculiar and interesting character. And you see the intrigue in the character as you're reading the book. And, and again, this is not an instance where we're getting a whole lot about Jenny Finn, but the little bit that you do get, it, it's it's supposed to make you wonder what's going on with her. Why is she like this? Why is everything going on? And I definitely got that. It, it did seem like, though, having two things going on at the same time, having a slasher killer and having this play go on at the same time. Honestly, I could have done with one or the other. I think that would have been fine. I think you could have saved one or the other for a little bit later on in the book. I know this is a four-issue limited series, but maybe if you were talking about a second volume, you take one of those and run with it. Maybe maybe it's a little early in the game here. Maybe this will make sense as we start to round out through these issues. But, I mean, I could have done with either or. There was nothing really I disliked about this book. The the art definitely got stronger as it went on by Nixie, which I really, really liked. And when it needed to be right out there, especially in a couple of pivotal, I would guess you could call them action sequences, even though they don't last very long. They, it, it was definitely strong there when it needed to be. And a couple of things with Jenny Finn, again, doing this spoiler-free. A couple of instances in Jenny Finn where you were trying to make a point about who she is and how mysterious she is. Those parts in the art were done very well. This is going to be a pickup for me, though, because while I did like it, I wasn't 100% sold on it. And I guess because maybe if I had gotten a little bit more background on Jenny Finn beforehand, it might have progressed a little bit more. I know they give you a little bit, but eh, just not enough to really grab me 
right now. So I will keep giving this a shot. I guess it's a four-issue series. Maybe I'll give it one more issue to see where we are and find out if it's going to remain in my poll box or not. I'll try and keep you updated on that. It's going to do it for what we're reading now. It's time to Ragnarok. Spoiler-filled review of Thor Ragnarok is up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hello, this is Ennis Esmer from Blindspot on NBC and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to see if we can get our Quinjet fired up. Before Hulk destroys it, it's my spoiler-filled review of Thor Ragnarok. So again, spoilers from here on out. If you haven't seen the movie yet, I would advise skipping ahead a little bit because we're really going to get into it. And I'm not going to give you every little plot detail, every little scene. If you've seen the movie, you're listening to a spoiler-filled review for a reason. I'm not going to give you every little thing. I am going to break down a few things. But the first thing I will say is I have never seen a sequel that is so 180 degree different from its previous movie or movies. This movie, Thor Ragnarok, is so even tonally, the characters themselves are so, so different than they have been in either of the previous Thor movies and even in some of the Avengers movies and other movies that that Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston have been in together and some of the other characters as well. I guess Heimdall, Idris Elba's character, is probably the closest to himself of any of these characters, and I guess Odin to a sh- to a shorter extent as well. But I get it. I'll get into that here in just a minute. But of course, you know, just to set the tone really quickly, we have Ragnarok that is potentially happening in Asgard. That means the destruction of Asgard could be upon us, and Thor is going to try and put a stop to that. And then he finds out that after again, spoiler alert. Odin dies since he finds out that Loki has been passing himself off as Odin. That whole veil gets lifted, and we find out that Loki sort of stashed Odin on Earth, and then Odin dies, which was the only thing holding Thor's sister, Hela, from coming back and trying to destroy Asgard and trying to pretty much take over the galaxy, for the lack of a better term. So that's kind of where things go from there, and and we see a few battles there, and and they try to go through the Bifrost, and they get knocked off course and end up on a planet called Sklar. And so that gives you two different things. You have Hela on Asgard along with Scourge, and then you have Loki and Thor who are on Sklar and the Grand Master played by Jeff Goldblum. Now, again, that's kind of where I'm going to stop with the details as far as the plot's concerned because I think you kind of kind of get the gist. Jeff Goldblum was so Jeff Goldblum in this movie, wasn't he? Oh, he was so great as the Grandmaster and that whole almost Epcot feel when Thor was getting his initiation into this the whole thing with Scalar and Valkyrie comes into play, played by Tessa Thompson, who again, I really liked. There was just something about her. Her character was so likable, even though she was kind of a bitch to Thor. And you sort of understand why she took that persona after you find out what happened to the Valkyrie and everything that happened with them and Hela and how she ended up where she was. You understand how she was given that attitude, but at the same time, she was still likable when she was a bitch, which is really, really difficult. Now, I got to give Tessa Thompson all the credit in the world for that. And just her interactions with Chris Hemsworth, I think were really, really cool. But Jeff Goldblum, man, I mean, you want to talk about a guy that, that almost stole the show in such a small way because he's not a huge part of the overall story here. It's almost like a side story, but at the same time, 
every scene Jeff Goldblum is in was just so Goldblum. And if you're a fan, you're locked in. But this being a comedy, and it really was a 100% comedy, one of my favorite scenes in the movie had really nothing. It was almost a throwaway scene, but I loved it. And it was a scene with Doctor Strange. And you see him talking about talking to Thor, saying, hey, you think it's a good idea to bring your brother back here? Because, you know, I kind of track people that are a threat to Earth, and he is one. And then when Loki falls through one of Doctor Strange's portals, and he says, I've been falling for 30 minutes, I lost it. I really, really lost it. I couldn't stop laughing. I knew there was no reason for me to be laughing as much as I was, but sorry, I did, and that's just the way it is. Another character that was really, really funny for me and another guy that almost stole the show was Korg played by director, by the way, voiced by director Taika Watiti. And just the comedic timing of every line that was delivered was almost perfect. And the whole, all right, then kind of thing was so hilarious for me. And the way we see them at the end and they're doing the whole, they're having the whole revolution and trying to battle back Hela. And he's up there being a badass, but being funny at the same time, and kind of offhandish in a certain way. Loved the whole thing. I mean, it just worked. And this being a comedy, I will say that I know when I talked about the trailer, I was worried that this was going to be too much of a comedy. It wasn't going to be serious enough because we were talking about Ragnarok. And I will say this. I am so glad, now that I've seen it, and how it was executed by Taika Waititi, that you guys were absolutely... 100% right to make this a comedy because yes, it was funny when it needed to be didn't beat you over the head with jokes, which I thought was great. It was serious when it needed to be serious. And there weren't a whole lot of serious moments. Most of the serious moments, as a matter of fact, involved Heimdall trying to keep the people of Asgard away from Hela and sort of stashing them away in a very refugee type way. I mean, if you, I definitely caught that reference, you know, you're, you're trying to keep them safe and away from the tyrannical ruler who's trying to overthrow your world sort of thing. So I definitely picked up on that. So those were really your serious moments other than seeing, you know, Fandral getting killed with Zachary Levi and a bunch of others getting killed the Bifrost, by the way, at least now we know why Zachary Levi is free to play Shazam and uh, the Shazam movie. Not that we didn't already kind of see that coming, especially for a couple of them as well. I think we saw Odin dying coming too. I don't think that was a really huge surprise either. But there weren't a whole lot of serious moments in this movie, and that was okay. And you saw the the Thor and Hulk relationship, I think, was one of my favorite things of the entire movie. It really was a buddy comedy, especially when Thor tries to leave and Hulk's busting through the Quinjet that they need to leave. And then once Hulk becomes Banner again... And the, the Thor's doing the whole, the sun's going down, the sun's going down. He says, will you stop doing that? It just, they played so well off of each other. And how Chris, Chris Hemsworth was the biggest 180 of all of the characters in this. And I talked about that a few minutes ago, how this movie was so completely different. I'm sure it was nice for Chris Hemsworth to play a lighter, more, you know, off-color Thor. That's the best way I could possibly put it. And even Loki, playing, but Tom Hiddleston playing an off-color Loki and giving you that uh, big brother, little brother kind of relationship between the two. And there wasn't really any animosity at any point between them. Well, I mean, maybe a little bit like when Odin dies and stuff like that, there was a little bit of animosity. For the most part, though, they get along. 
and or at least they kind of play off of each other really, really well. And then you see the double cross towards the end between Thor and Loki because of Loki tries to pull the double cross. And then there's a double double cross, which was another funny moment. Now, I've talked about a lot of stuff that I loved, and there was a lot to love about this movie. But at the same time, there were a couple things that I was like, eh, I'm not too sure about this. First of all, well, I thought Kate Blanchett did a fantastic job as Hela, and she definitely had her badass moments. Overall, if we're being honest, she was kind of it was kind of a weak villain, and it wasn't her fault, I don't think. I mean, yes, she could throw the daggers, and yes, she had some good fighting skills, and she held her own against Thor. She smashes Mjolnir, which was a, another big moment, but we saw that in the trailer, so it wasn't really a wow moment in the movie itself. So she definitely could, could hold her own, but at the same time. Yeah, I, I just didn't buy that she was gonna be she was gonna ultimately be the one that took over the galaxy and, you know, ruled Asgard and was really gonna get away with this. And I think that that's the mark of any good villain where in most superhero movies you don't expect the villain to win. I mean that's that's pretty standard, right? But at the same time, you have to be given that thought that the villain is going to win. And she was kind of one dimensional, which I, I was a little bit bummed out about. And, you know, you get the whole, you know, I was Odin's executioner and the Odin wasn't the man you thought he was. And even that wasn't a huge moment for me. So I did have a little bit of problem with that. And I guess the problem kind of continues Marvel and their villains. And again, not the Kate Blanchett was bad. I just thought she was a little weak. And while her fight scenes were good overall, I just didn't buy that she was going to be able to do this, especially since she didn't really have help. I mean, she summoned some guards, you know, brought them back from the dead, brought back the big, the, the big wolf, the big dog. But at the same time, like, no, no, this, this just isn't going to happen. I understand what you're trying to do, but it's not going to happen. And in the grand scheme of things, honestly, when Asgard does get destroyed and they find out that's how we have to beat Hela, we actually have to destroy Asgard and make that happen. That's one of those moments to me where, as a fan, I should be almost in tears watching Asgard burn to the ground, even though you know it's the right thing to do. I feel like I should have had more of a reaction than I did. It was almost like a, well, yeah, yeah, you can do what you got to do. And I'm like, no, that shouldn't be my reaction. I should be crushed by this. And I just wasn't. So that was another problem for me. I don't feel like they made Asgard matter Enough, And I guess that's not this director's fault because I guess you have to make it matter more in other movies as well. And maybe because the characters, if it was so easy for them to sort of move on, it seemed like, not for all of them, but it seemed like the main characters, it seemed like it was okay for them to move on. So it just seemed easy and I guess I didn't want it to be and maybe that's my problem. I don't know. Quickly, I want to talk about the end credit scenes. Of course, you had that tease where they're deciding, maybe let's go back to Earth. And Thor says, I'm popular on Earth. And Loki says he's not. And they kind of get into a little bit of a little bit of a back and forth. And then we see the giant ship that pretty much engulfs their refugee ship, right? The, the ship that saves everyone in Asgard. And while it's not obvious... I think just by the timeline and the descriptions of what you've seen from the, well, the descriptions of what you read anyway, from the Avengers Infinity War trailer, that's pretty much Thanos' ship, or at least Thanos' minion ship, right? So we'll find out exactly where that picks up in Avengers Infinity War. You might pick up right there. there that might be one of the first scenes in Avengers Infinity War. And then you have the final one, which is the another comedic moment with Jeff Goldblum 
and the revolution on Skalar, and he's like, hey, go us, can't have a revolution without somebody to overthrow, I'm your grandmaster, and while again, you don't actually see him die, you kind of read the tea leaves on that one, don't you? So, I mean, all things considered, I know I didn't touch on every character, I thought that uh, Carl Urban's moment of Scourge when he's jumping off of the ship and having a moment that was pretty much ripped right out of the comics where he decides to, and you could tell he was uneasy the entire movie with, do I want to be with Hela? Do I want to save Asgard? He finally makes that decision to save Asgard. And it, that was a cool moment. Again, ripped right from the comics, which is not really Marvel's forte to rip stuff right from the comics. But if you're going to pick and choose your moments, that was a good one to choose. Even though I did have a couple of problems with it, this was definitely my favorite Thor movie. And if you've listened to this show before, you know that I've been kind of the apologist for the Thor movies in the past. I've liked them all now so far. And I know that that's not a popular opinion. It's not like I would put Thor or Thor Dark World up in the top five or anything. But I didn't hate them as much as some fans did, I guess is my point. This one, definitely the strongest. If I'm putting this comedically and comedically only up against something... I think it's funnier than Guardians of the Galaxy and Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I know that Deadpool's not part of the MCU, but I got to give the comedic edge to Deadpool for obvious reasons. I think that that one was meant to be a comedy from the beginning, and you had Ryan Reynolds in almost complete control of everything and knew exactly where to go, even though this was brilliantly done. I mean, to be able to take a story like this, craft it into a buddy comedy slash action adventure movie slash sci-fi movie slash gladiator movie I thought was perfect. I think it's going to be really hard actually for Marvel to top this going forward. Black Panther is going to be completely different tonally so you won't even be able to really compare it to that. But if Avengers Infinity War is really going to be this heist movie and then you see Mark Ruffalo coming out and saying that it's going to be funny, but but and I'm not sure about that. Do you want Avengers Infinity War to be funny? I, I, I get it. I just said a couple minutes ago that I wasn't sure about Ragnarok being funny, and that worked out. But this is different. I mean, like, would, would it have made sense for Civil War to be funny? No, absolutely not. So I'm just not sure when Thanos is trying to take over the world, steal the Infinity Gauntlet, and rule and destroy everything, not sure there's a whole lot of moments of humor there, so I'm hoping that it's not funny like Thor Ragnarok was funny. But again, when you could set the bar for your movies with a third movie in a series, I think that's a really, really good sign. So the Marvel's MCU is going to keep trucking along. I'm going to go ahead and give this nine uneasy haircuts by Stan Lee out of ten. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Thor Ragnarok. Up next, Marvel continues in nerd news, and that's here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, what's up? This is writer Sam Humphreys, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. One of those stories you probably never thought you would hear, but we have it this week. It's time for nerd news. And my eyes almost popped right out of my head, cartoon style, when I saw this. And I almost thought it wasn't real when I saw that Brian Michael Bendis would be leaving Marvel and heading to DC Comics in a multi-year, multi-faceted deal that has been confirmed by everyone involved on Twitter. 18 years with Marvel, co-creating Jessica Jones, Miles Morales, Riri Williams, a whole bunch of other characters. And now we see Bendis heading to DC with already a superstar lineup of writers since Rebirth. I think, obviously... This is a huge, 
huge deal for DC. Not only do you get a name, but I'll be honest, it's been a while since we've talked about Marvel Comics on this show. We, we, made a, we made a point saying, hey, we will not talk about Marvel Comics on this show again until Marvel gets their house in order. The comics are a mess, and we are not talking about Marvel Comics on this show until they get it together. However, kind of have to in this instance, right? I'll, be, I'll admit it, that Bendis' stuff for Marvel especially the Iron Man stuff, was some of the only Marvel stuff I was even enjoying before I kind of stopped reading Marvel altogether. And I've been kind of in and out here and there seeing how things are, but honestly, this is kind of good for both sides, isn't it? You would think it leaves a huge hole in Marvel's lineup, and maybe it does, because Bendis was still writing some pretty big titles, and there's no real word on when this starts and ends or anything like that, and I'm sure that replacements will be found at Marvel pretty easily. But at the same time, first of all, that's those are big shoes to fill no matter who has to do it. And But second of all, maybe, just maybe, it forces Marvel to inject some new names and new faces into their lineup and creative teams. Because, you know, while I love guys like Jason Aaron and, and the gang, it's, you know, you get the same people writing the same books, you're going to get people that are just tired of what they're reading, quite frankly. And from Bendis' perspective, he even said that change is a good thing. And I think this will be a good thing. This is kind of almost like when Jack Kirby left Marvel years ago and went over to DC. It's really kind of on that level in our modern era of comics. That's where Bendis kind of is right now. And if it's me, I'm putting him on maybe Green Lantern right away. I think he could do great things with either Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps or... For Green Lanterns, I know that Sam Humphreys is doing that right now. Robert Viditti, they're both doing a good job with their respective books. But I just see what Bendis could do for a character like Hal Jordan or for Kyle Rayner or for Jessica Cruz or Simon Baz. I see what he could do with that. And to me, that would be a good starting point. But here's something that maybe is getting lost in all of this talk. And I was thinking about this. This is a multi-year, multifaceted deal, Okay. That means DC Comics, the umbrella of DC Comics. So we know that the Vertigo line is being relaunched here pretty soon in 2018. So what if DC is also thinking, let's bring in a guy like Brian Michael Bendis, who's itching to do something a little bit different, who's itching to get out of his comfort zone. Maybe we let him do some stuff for Vertigo and create, because that's something that obviously Bendis has been pretty good at, one of the best at Marvel in the last decade or so of creating characters. Let's let Bendis do something that he really wants to do and create create characters, create stories. Maybe he's going to be a big part of what's going to be going on with Vertigo. You can't not use him on superhero titles for DC because that would be ridiculous. But at the same time, I think you could see him do some great things at Vertigo. And Vertigo deserves to be back towards the top, doesn't it? It's... It, there were some great books and some great stories told by Vertigo. And not that there aren't now. I mean, I'm loving Savage Things from Justin Jordan and a couple of other Vertigo books as well, but not really at the level that they were. And to do that, you bring somebody like Brian Michael Bendis in, I think that could really help. So I think good for both sides. And only if Marvel decides to try and do something a little bit different and not throw like five books at Jason Aaron just because he might be the best writer that they have right now. So hopefully... Marvel does the right thing there. Speaking of Marvel, Disney wasn't quite done this week, and a huge deal almost happened, and we found out that it fell through when Disney, according to multiple reports, multiple reports, almost bought 21st Century Fox. And yes, 
that would have brought the X-Men and the Fantastic Four back to the MCU. And this wouldn't have just involved movies either. This would have involved TV as well. And one of the reasons it seems like Marvel wanted to try and do this, and Rupert Murdoch was rumored to sell off part of his empire anyway. So it's not like this. The, there's a deal that might not still happen, even if it's not with Disney. But what this would have done for Disney is it would have bolstered their TV. And I think that that's one of the areas that I think Disney knows they are getting it handed to them in TV right now. Not just by DC, but by HBO and even Netflix streaming services and stuff like that. They're getting it handed to them in the TV department right now. You bring back the X-Men and the Fantastic Four, that means you've automatically got the Gifted back in your library. It looks like probably even Legion as well. Of course, X-Men titles. You even branch that out into Deadpool and other things, and you have an endless list of possibilities, and you can finally put the Inhumans to bed because that's clearly not working for you on TV anyway. So you get, again, I'll talk about the Inhumans. I'll talk about how Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. hasn't been as strong as as it really should be, and I know that's an arguable point. Then you've got this whole fiasco that we talked about last week with New Warriors not being on Freeform because they don't have a slot for it. And, T- and Disney just needs a place for some of this stuff. And... For their movies, the only thing I worry about with something like this, and I know it's not happening, but I, I, you just figure this isn't a dead, dead deal, right? Don't you worry at some point, first of all, Disney starts to become a monopoly and own too many things. And that's never a good thing. When you've got, if you've got one person owning almost everything, that's not necessarily going to be good. Plus, as you see from Disney already, it seems like some things get lost on the shuffle to focus on bigger things. You know, focusing on the MCU... Maybe they're not focusing enough on their TV, and that's why it's lacking. And then you look at the stuff that they've had with Netflix, and you get a lot of help there. And that's been very well done because it seemed like they kind of let them do what they wanted to do, right? Okay, you do this. We can be a little bit more edgy because this is Netflix and we can't on network TV. But once you're controlling more things, where do these things go? And is there a delegation there? Do you still let Fox be Fox? Or do you let Fox be Fox under the Disney umbrella and like, here's our rules, make sure you abide by them. I know that they'd probably do Fantastic Four better. It's arguable with X-Men. Maybe you feel more comfortable with that than you do in humans and certainly have more to work with there and that's more familiar to people. I am so glad that this fell through because... It just seems like it would be too much for Disney to focus on or not focus on. And, and and I don't think that they need to have any more than they do now. Because I don't want Star Wars to end up suffering because of this. I don't want any of the Marvel stuff to end up suffering because of this. And then it's not just that. It's properties that aren't even comic book properties that would end up suffering in this as well. And where does that go? And where do those creative directions head under the, under the Disney umbrella? So I think it's best... Leave them separate for now. If Disney wants to try and reacquire certain properties like the X-Men on their own, I'm fine with that, but I really, really hope that this deal does not, in fact, happen. Speaking of big purchases that did happen, we know that Netflix did purchase Mark Millar's Millar World Comics, and now we have the first announcement from Mark himself that we have the Magic Order, the first comic book series from Netflix, is going to be coming in the spring of 2018. It's going to be a six-issue series. Art's going to be done by Olivier Coipel, who does Thor, Avengers, Spider-Man for Marvel right now. And if you've seen the cover teaser image, it's some really good art already. The basis of the story is that there's five families of magicians and sorcerers and wizards and stuff like that that are kind of sworn to protect the world, but they're being picked off one by one by the darkness. And it's almost like the mob 
meets magicians kind of thing because you've got five families and they kind of have to work together. I love the concept. I love the fact that it's magicians because I'm always a fan of magician type stuff, whether it be the magicians or I mean, movies like now you see me out. I've always been into magician type stuff and wizardry. And this just seems like the kind of thing that's in Millar's wheelhouse, doesn't it? And this is something that so easily translates into a series and into movies and stuff like that. But I do like that this relationship is starting with comics, but And I've seen this point being brought up on message boards and on Twitter and stuff like that. Will this be a thing where all six issues will be available to binge read Netflix style? I mean, this wouldn't be the first time that Netflix has done stuff on a weekly basis where it's like, okay, one episode a week and that's it. They've done that with their talk show format stuff before and some other things. But you don't see that as Netflix's standard, right? And that's never really worked out for them. So you almost have to release all six issues at the same time, don't you? Although this is a different thing now. This is a publishing arm, and there will be some print copies available in comic shops. I know Legendary had kind of a slow start when they were trying to launch their comics line, so I don't know how much it's going to matter with Netflix being a little bit bigger and having a little bit more control and a little bit more familiarity. I'm sure it would be easier for them to get into comic shops. But at the same time, you have to wonder how well this is going to do and if people are going to read this, first of all. And second of all, just say, well, you know, I know this is going to come to series soon enough, so I don't need to read it. I'll read it if I need to at some point. I trust Mark Millar, especially since he's going to be writing this, and I know he's still going to be heavily involved. And even though he's even said in a couple of interviews now, he's like, I don't own these anymore. I am on staff. This is what I'm doing. Maybe that takes a weight off his shoulders, though. Maybe that makes it a little bit easier for him to kind of create and not have to worry about the creator-owned rights for this. So maybe this is going to be a breath of fresh air for him. And either way, I know that this is going to be a great story because I don't think I've read anything of Mark's that I don't love. So I trust in that. But how Netflix is going to handle a publishing arm I think it's going to be interesting and hopefully not too many tropes thrown into this. I'd really like to see something fresh and new in the magicians type category. Speaking of fresh and new, Niantic just announced something that will make them print even more money after the success of Pokemon Go, which is kind of the, the popularity's waned a little bit. You don't see it as popular as it was before. So they decide now to partner with Warner Brothers for a Harry Potter AR experience called Harry Potter Wizards Unite is basically going to be Pokemon Go with Harry Potter. And that is brilliant. It's going to be happening in 2018. They've even said in their release that it's probably going to take cues from their very first game, which was Ingress, and that whole real-world experience, experiencing exploring real-world neighborhoods. You're going to have to learn spells. You can even do battles and stuff like that. I mean, if there's a fandom that can be on par with Pokemon, I think Harry Potter is that fandom. And to go from one massively ravenous fandom into another, and in a world of Harry Potter where as far as media is concerned, as far as like movies, television, stuff like that, I know that they're doing some theater stuff. This is a fandom that is starved for something new. And not only does this give it to them, but it puts them... In the world, and one thing you want to be, one of the things you fantasize about when you when you 
become fans of this stuff. So what if I could put myself in that world? And I know that, I mean, in a way you're, you're not really doing that, but it makes it feel like that, doesn't it? That's what alternate reality stuff or augmented reality is supposed to be about, isn't it? Making you feel like you are a part of that world. And it's almost like there's almost no way for them to do this where it actually fails unless it's just super corny and ridiculous or too difficult to follow. Those are really the only things that could that could doom this because, again, to me, this prints money and this screams popularity. This might actually end up being more popular than Pokemon Go because it really, and if you think about it, it takes LARPing to an entirely different and legitimate level and you could even incorporate this into LARPing, couldn't you? And that's still something that's popular. I've gone to a park many a times and seen LARPing going on right out there with giant groups. And that's the, that was the whole point of Pokemon Go. Large groups of people would get together, show up at these gyms and the, and the battle zones and stuff like that, and just have huge gatherings. And I don't see how this is going to be any different. So brilliant, brilliant move by everybody involved there. And I can't wait to see where this one goes and see if it even surpasses Pokemon Go. Finally, one more news piece to talk about, and it's from The Hollywood Reporter and something that really doesn't surprise me at all. But to the degree that it's happened, I am a little bit surprised. Universal and their dark universe with the monster movies is in huge trouble because Top producers Alex Kurtzman and Chris Morgan are actually out now of that project. Kurtzman Kurtzman has said he's going to leave to focus a little bit more on the TV side, of course, being an executive producer for Star Trek Discovery and things of that nature. And then Morgan is going to return to the Fast and the Furious franchise and write spinoff movies and continue in that franchise as well. First of all, can you blame them? Especially after the way The Mummy bombed. Again, I didn't hate The Mummy movie. But the way it was just trying to force everything being connected in there really, really distracted from a story that could have been really great to tell. So I can't blame them for bailing on this. And it seems like the the offices where these movies were going to be made and created are kind of empty right now, according to some reports that were attached to this story from The Hollywood Reporter. And now one of the reports is, is that Universal wants to turn these movies into one-offs instead of a connected universe. As a matter of fact, I want to touch on this quote by Universal President Peter Kramer, who actually said, and I quote, we've learned many lessons throughout the creative process on Dark Universe so far, and we are viewing these titles as filmmaker-driven vehicles. Now, that's just part of the larger quote, but I wanted to focus on that. Maybe they get it, okay? I can see why you wanted these worlds to be connected. And certainly if you were really, really careful, you could make that work, right? But aren't these really to be treated as separate entities all along? Did we ever really need these to be connected? The need for things to be connected. And this takes me back to my argument for Marvel as well. You do not need for these things to be connected. And I think that Warner Brothers is starting to learn that lesson with their DC movies because we see that a lot of these movies now, or at least some of them anyway, seem like they're going to be out of continuity or at least not beholden to the continuity of the main storyline that's going on. Maybe you call it the Justice League storyline, right? Not all of them are going to be connected. Like the Batman might not be connected. Shazam might not be connected. And a couple of other movies that have been talked about as well. So 
why can't you do that with the franchise that basically built Universal, right? The Universal Monsters. That's what we call them. The Universal Monsters. Why couldn't the mummy stand on its own? Why can't Frankenstein stand on its own? Creature of the Black, of the Black Lagoon and so on and so forth. It can. You can make multiple sequels of one character without having to incorporate the other characters in there. It is not necessary. If you find yourself in a position down the road to be able to do something like that, great. But that should not have been the focus from the beginning. And maybe it took one failure for them to understand that. But the only problem is, is now we've already got Bride of Frankenstein that's been delayed. This is going to put everything either behind the eight ball or it's going to destroy it before it even gets a chance to start. So what we might be looking at here is a total teardown and redo of the whole Universal Monsters thing. And maybe you feel like that's a good thing. Maybe you feel like that's a bad thing. I feel like you kind of have to keep going with what you're doing. You don't make it connected. Make these, as you said, filmmaker-driven movies. Make these about the filmmakers. Let them execute their vision. Good, bad, or indifferent. You hire these people to execute a vision. Let them do it and see what happens because I think that's your best chance for success. That's going to do it for a big week in nerd news, actually. Up next, time to talk some comics. IDW's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Ghostbusters is having their second crossover. And I have writers Eric Burnham and Tom Waltz for you next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Kevin Eastman, co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and you're listening to me on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It was a crossover too good not to do for a second time. Of course, I'm talking about IDW's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Ghostbusters 2 crossover with issues 1 and 2 out right now. I just had to talk to both writers, so I have Eric Burnham on the show this week, as well as writer and editor Tom Waltz returning. Gentlemen, how you doing? Great, how you doing? Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. I'm doing good. All right now, guys, it's been a few years since the first installment of this crossover. And were there plans for a second crossover all along, or was this kind of something that was brought on by demand? Uh, As far as plans, uh, I'm going to say there was hopes. We had so much fun doing the first one, we immediately hoped to be able to do a second. But Tom has this dense plotting that, uh, you know, I think has has him taken about 30 years out from where he is now, so it was hard (laughs) to work it in. But no, no, we hoped we hoped from the get go. Uh, just, just not even based on sales or reaction. Just based on how much fun we were having working with these two teams put together, uh, that we'd get to do another one. So, you know, it worked mm. out. Yeah, it's kind of worked out both times that in our individual ongoing series, both the Ghostbusters and Turtles, we kind of found a point in those respective stories where where. The stories, the crossover story would fit. In this case, the turtles were coming back from uh, Dimension X in the Trial of Krang storyline, and uh, there was kind of a pause after Ghostbusters 101 uh, in the Ghostbusters storyline, both of which uh, relied heavily on dimensional portals. So they were they were kind of a, a big aspect to the plots in both both ongoings. So we just kind of found a way to to put this together. Now the funny thing is, this is a, a five week event. We uh, Nickelodeon has a lot of plans for turtles next year. And they wanted us to kind of like try to get this into 2017 because they have some big things they want to roll out in 2018. And so that was probably the the challenge here was we wanted to do this. And both Nickelodeon and Sony and Ghost Corps wanted 
to make this happen, but we didn't have a lot of time to do it. Luckily, uh, Bobby Kernow, the editor, came up with the idea of let's do this as a five-week event. Since we're jumping uh, uh, dimensions, we're going to get a chance to utilize different artists besides the main artist, Dan Schoening, to show different aspects of those dimensions at the same time, help us meet our deadlines. And in the end, I mean, in all honesty, I was like, I'm not sure how this will work, but as Eric, I'm sure will attest, it turned out wonderfully in the end and having the variety of artists, I think just has added to the excitement and it made this kind of uh, unique uh, in comparison to the first crossover. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because that's actually one of the things that I love about this story is that it doesn't shy away from what's been going on on the ongoing series of each book, but I can't help but wonder, is there ever any kind of temptation to make this kind of an out-of-continuity, standalone type story? I mean, that would make it easier, mm-hmm. but also part of the fun for me, and I, I hope for Tom, is to figure out a way to make it work and count towards the you know the, the expanding stories of each team. So, I mean, I, I just enjoy that part of it. So, I mean, you know, you could do a lot more if there were no consequences to the story, but having that there, it's, it's just one more piece that forces us to come up with the, you know, some creative solutions we wouldn't have to otherwise. Right, and, and then I think also both series have such huge ensemble casts and such a huge, uh, such a long continuity, both of them, uh, both Eric's Ghostbusters and our Turtles books, that on the Turtle side, we've, all, we've had to um, bring in another sister's uh, publication called Turtles Universe, TMNT Universe, so we can tell stories we can't normally fit into the ongoing. So this crossover just gives us one more way we can tell stories that just we can't get into the ongoing story which is like eric said earlier dense enough as it is the plot there's so much going on but it's also i think a way to to show that comics count like the, that continuity does count canon counts and, and i think a lot of, a lot of fans enjoy that aspect of it i think that's that's cool we have a we have one that's out of continuity which is our turtles batman crossover right so that's kind of, that's kind of its own thing but when it comes to the Ghostbusters and the Turtles, I feel like because we're kind of in that greater IDW universe, uh, it, it's neat to have it feel like there is kind of this multidimensional aspect to everything we do at IDW. And we're just finding ways to kind of fit that together one way or another. Kind of sticking with that, I always thought that the collectors were some of the most formidable foes that the Ghostbusters had in those books. So, And now we see them brought back for this crossover. So as a reader... It feels like you're given a real sense that the villain could actually win in the end. How difficult is that to create that kind of feeling in a story like this? Hmm. Well, for the, the collectors themselves, I'll let Eric talk about the collectors. What's fun here, again, and this goes back to why we would want to keep this in continuity, uh, is because somebody like a Darius Dunn, who who is a bad guy in the Turtles run, he, you know, he came to a kind of a quick and I'd like to think shocking, unexpected demise. But as a writer, I was and and I'm actually a fan of what we do uh, when we, we sit in meetings. Kevin Eastman, Bobby Kernow, and I we plot these things out. So we kind of come in as fans and what we think fans would like, and then we we put it on paper. The the funny thing is, with Darius, that was my plan to kill him. But then I was mad at myself that I killed him because <laughs> I like writing him so much. So when Eric and I sat down and we were trying to think about what villains will we bring from both the respective uh, books, you know, Eric had a great idea about the, the collectors. And then I thought, who can we bring from Turtles? It just seems like Shredder's too obvious. And, and I, I felt like 
you need to do something different. And then I thought, wait a minute, I know who's dead, and I know who's dead, and I don't want to be dead. Is Darius Dunn? So I kind of got my cake, got my my cake, and I got to eat it too. Where I said, let's just bring Darius back because there's there's more uh, there's more juice in this guy, and we need we need to get him in there. You know, this this all came uh, picking the bad guys all came up. I was I was bugging Tom while I was on a long and very boring drive across western Minnesota where there's not a lot to see up to Fargo. So I was I was just keeping him going just so he'd stay on the phone and I wouldn't have to deal with the <laughs> landscape. But uh, no, we were we were uh, coming up. We were we were throwing out all kinds of ideas. Shredder, uh, as he is dead right now, uh, you know, spoilers from a couple years ago, um, came up as as a potential because I mean, hey, now he's a ghost. He could he could do some stuff. Maybe he does this. Maybe he does that. Tom didn't want to go there and came with uh, came up with uh, Darius done really fast and uh, you know just I mean immediately so I mean that was clearly the right answer. Uh, the collectors were were there just about from go because uh, partly because you know they they travel through the dimensions easily they're a relentless which is a nice threat and the Ghostbusters didn't actually beat them with any finality in the new Ghostbusters mm-hmm. arc they kind of lucked out on a win which meant that they were a slightly bigger threat which was, it was good for a for a two team team up you know it worked out that way it uh it was a nice threat so it just it just all kind of uh worked together serendipitously now tom remember i asked you on the show a couple years ago if shredder was going to stay dead and your answer was it's comics man so i see what you did <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but but with darius like i said it was just like kind of kismet it just kind of came together and it was it's perfect timing because i was still kind of bumming out about him leaving the book the way he right. did it, although Within the context of the story, it was great, and it's been a, it's actually supplies some real drama for this crossover because what we're going to deal with is the, the turtles themselves are still dealing with the fallout of that moment in the in the turtles ongoing when their father has sorry guys spoilers when their father Splinter, who is now uh, master of the Foot Clan, has Darius done assassinated for not you know uh, capitulating and bowing to the Foot Clan, and so. This is something that's, that's a big deal in the Turtles universe. Now they have the opportunity to kind of deal with some of the emotional issues and the, and the emotional trauma that comes with that, you know, through through their uh, adventures here with the Ghostbusters. Kind of a play off of that. You had uh, when each when everybody goes to all these different dimensions to try and outrace the collectors. You have all these different pairings of of someone from the Turtles universe and the Ghostbusters Ghostbusters universe. One of my favorite pairings actually was Michelangelo and Venkman, and they kind of had an unexpected real moment between the two of them. So did you? Did either of you kind of have a favorite pairing during that second issue? That was that was that was my favorite pairing in the first miniseries. We we kind of paired them paired them up a little bit closer with personality. So it was Peter and Raphael. They're they're a little bit more similar in that way. But this one, uh, Peter is has his legitimate psychology degree, and Michelangelo is such a you know hard on his sleeve type. It made more sense to pair them for you know what what Tom was just talking about before dealing with some of the emotional fallout. And yeah, that that just became my favorite moment. Um, it, it was already in the preview, so I can just go ahead and say, you know, the uh, the previews, uh, the free previews that came out yesterday, um, the hug it out bit. I just that that made me smile to to include, and I just I enjoyed that bit quite a bit. And, you know, it would be easy for me to say my favorite pairing would be Winston and Leonardo because you know our, our Winston's an old Marine and I'm an old Marine, and that that was something that in the first crossover when Eric and I were plotting it out, I always said to him one thing I really want to do is kind of establish that relationship between Leonardo and Winston, kind of the, you know, the old Marine and the, and the young, young soldier kind of coming together. But I will say this for this crossover, 
I love the Michelangelo Wagner stuff, and, and both of these are, are Eric's master masterminds right here. But I really, really like the stance, Ray Stance and Raphael relationship in this crossover because it just it, you've got the the stereotypical you know uh, iconical grunk with Mr. You know, sun, sunshine and, and butterflies and optimism, race dance, and what happens with those two in this issue is or this crossover is fascinating. And that was that was all out of Eric's head. I, every time I read what he was writing, I was cracking up, and I think the fans will too when they see see what happens to those two. Yeah, that one gets weird in a, in the best <laughs> way. Yeah, there's there's no doubt about that. I actually really enjoyed that one too. We're talking to Eric Burnham and Tom Waltz, who are writing the TMNT Ghostbusters 2 crossover, which, of course, issues 1 and 2 available now, issue 3 coming out next week. Now, gentlemen, it's always interesting to see what different what different things you kind of deal with in alternate dimensions and stuff like that. So that being said, what is one thing that, if you found it existed in another dimension, would actually make you want to stay there? Oh, jeez. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's kind of, I'm, I'm kind of sitting here with option paralysis, I think, right now. I figured, I figured, I also figured Tom would be just leaping right in with, uh, when with a long time? answer, and I would have time to think, you know? What I, I, mean? I don't know, no IRS? Yeah. Oh, I like that. I, that's, that's a good one. I like that. That's it. I, I think I'm going to have to cop that answer, too, because it's too good not to. So that way we can all be nice and calm in April and March, and then we're good to go. That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like it. So I want to touch on something that you guys said earlier, as a matter of fact, because when we see the two groups split up and across the dimensions, I do love the fact that you had different artists representing each dimension that they entered. So how did you kind of approach that? And did you sort of seek out certain artists to create a certain vibe? I, I wish I could take more credit for it, but that is all out to Bobby Kernow. Yep. Um, I, I know Tom and I threw out a couple of suggestions as the scripting process was going, but uh, he had his head down over uh, over the regular Ninja Turtles series and all that he's editing, and I had my head down over some other projects in this. So, uh, yeah, no, like I said, I'd, I'd love to take the credit, but it's all on Bobby, and he picked just winners across the board. Yeah, I mean, as anybody who knows, who's been following our, our Turtles ongoing over the years, and, and Bobby's been in charge since the very beginning, he has a very keen eye for the right artist, you know, for each storyline that we're telling. So uh, he he just he just knows who to bring in to tell, you know, visually the 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 best story, you know, that represents the, the words that we've written. And this is no exception. I mean, he he just found folks that are awesome, and and for as different as the styles are, it all comes together, it all molds well. I can't wait to see this. This is going to be a fantastic trick. I can't wait to see it all collected together because I think when you have it like that, you see how well um, each artist kind of bounces off each other. And that they're so different, yet it, it doesn't, to me personally, it doesn't feel jarring at all. It feels like you just flow through these stories naturally and the art works for each dimension. Now, speaking of the previews that Eric mentioned, there was something else that was in the previews of this book that you can expect an issue to, and that is the Turtle Ghostbusters. So I got to ask, because <laughs> this is one of the first things that popped in my head when I read it, is, is there any chance that we will see a Ninja Egon being a reality at some point? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, maybe uh, maybe in some other dimension we can have a Ninja Egon. That would be... <laughs> <laughs> That would actually be kind of frightening. Now, the more I think about it, uh, <laughs> but it could be funny. I think, uh, yeah, I think the the uh, the next Ghostbusters project, I might have to try and figure out a way to sneak that in because it's it's making me laugh. But uh, 
but no, I I, uh, I had uh, I had a blast just uh, just throwing together. Just it, this was all from a bad pun that uh, we were throwing around while I was throwing around uh, on the first crossover. Just you know the portmanteau of uh, Ghostbust Turtles, oh, and yes. that's yeah that's yes. why that uh, that's why that came up here. Uh, so um, <laughs> this is a bad you know. pun safe zone, by the way. In case you didn't know, yes. we're, we're good. Here. It was it was it was <laughs> yes, but uh, yeah, we we wanted to get that in there, and uh, and thus we did. So, uh, looking forward to, to people meeting, uh, meeting those characters. Now, guys, since this is a weekly book, fans don't really have to wait long for the story to sort of play out. That being said, now, without spoiling anything, how quickly will we kind of see the consequences of Darius Dunn summoning the Collectors play out? And are there more twists that we can look forward to here towards the end? Oh, there's a couple more twists. Uh, <laughs> and, and, yeah, that's un- unfortunately they're, they're pretty specific and uh, we, we can't say anything about them. But, uh, yeah, no, there's a couple more twists. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember if it's, it's an issue four where they, they really, uh, the, the big twist really, really comes about. So issue four has a lot of my favorite beats. The the, uh, the big twist here is in issue four, and then the uh, the last page of issue four was is just one of my wow. That's that's going to make people want to you know time travel a week to get to the next issue. That last page of issue four. So wedding uh, appetites hopefully with all these non spoilery tantalizing vague statements. <laughs> yeah, I, like, like Eric said, I, I think um, we've definitely got twists with uh, with Darius leading into the conclusion, but I, and I will say, and I'll reiterate what he said, uh, the end of issue four and the beginning of issue five are, are pretty huge for me. This is something I've been wanting to do for a while, and this book gives me the, the chance to do it. We, I thought I'd be able to do something like this in the ongoing, and we've just never been able to do it. And, and one of our rules, Kevin and Bobby and I have a rule that we don't shoehorn anything in. If it doesn't work, you know, matter how bad, no matter how badly we want to do it, we're not going to like just force it into our our ongoing uh, storyline. And this is one of those moments that I've always wanted to write, just never had an opportunity to do it. And so this gave us that chance, and it turned out wonder. I think wonderfully. I'm, I'm really happy with it, and it was exciting to to write it and uh, coming for fans to see it. Well, again, you won't have to wait long because Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Ghostbusters 2, Issues 1 and 2 available right now at your local shops and digital retailers. Issue 3 actually going to be available on New Comic Book Day every week for the next few weeks. It's Eric Burnham and Tom Waltz. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Oh, our pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us again, man. Again, thanks to Eric Burnham and Tom Waltz for joining me this week to talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Ghostbusters 2, the crossover from IDW, issues 1 and 2, again available now, issue 3, 4, and 5 in the subsequent weeks. But there's just so much to enjoy about this crossover. And I mean, Dan Schoening's art and the other artists that they brought in for the other dimensions are one of those great things. But the story just, these two groups just fit together so well. I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, you see crossovers and you enjoy them, but this is one of those crossovers where I feel like you could do this all the time, and it would make sense so often. And these two groups just play off so well from each other. It's just such an enjoyable read. And, and even without cliffhangers, it sort of leaves you wanting the next issue even more once you've read the last one. At least that's my experience anyway. So make sure you're getting the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Ghostbusters 2 crossover. If you want the first crossover, the trade is actually available now as well at your local shops and digital retailers. Make sure you're calling around for that. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You can always find out more about the show and all the other stuff we've got going on at downandnerdypodcast.com. You can catch past shows. As a matter of fact, you can go all the way back to listen to us talk to Tom Waltz 
again from a couple of years ago when we were talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as well. So you can catch that episode and a heck of a lot more at downandnerdypodcast.com. Follow us on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Don't forget, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.